0: That's a first. (laughs) My name is Beverly, and I am a very grateful member of Al Anon. Welcome to the first um, Al Anon step workshop for South Bay Roundup. In the program, there's a cartoon of a little woman who's like this, and so we can say, yes, we finally did it, or else we can say, now where is he, which is <laughs> <Just laughs> what Marcine thought that was a good image of. Um, I am absolutely about as grateful as I can be to have been invited to share uh, at your first uh, workshop. This is truly um It's just—it's beyond anything I can put into words. I heard somebody say not too long ago that the English language often doesn't have enough words to describe things that are really wonderful, um, and—and I don't have the words to tell you what's in my heart for this privilege and opportunity. Uh, I live in Louisville, Texas, and that is about 22 miles north of Dallas on Interstate 35. I belong to the Horizon Al-Anon Family Group, which meets in Dallas, and I've been a member of that group for about 15 years. I've been in the program for 16 and a half years, and I had the privilege of joining some people. You know, when you come in the program, they say, stick with the winners, and, and the winners said, come with us, and my husband and I didn't know uh, anything about what that was all about, but we went with them because we felt at home with these people. And we sat in the room, and uh, we were trying to decide for a name for that group, and the sun was setting, and, and uh, it's pretty flat in Texas, but this particular day there really was a horizon, and the sun was going down over it, and we named our group Horizon. And I have been an active member of that group and several other groups in Dallas, um, ever since. I go into Dallas for meetings for the same reason because they said stick with the winners. And, um, and uh, I don't know. And to me, it's, it's worth, it's worth it. You pay, you just, if, if you want what, what somebody that you look at has and you're willing to go to any, Length to get whatever it is that you think they have, you will get in the car and drive 22 miles seven times a week if you have to, and I did that for eight years, um, <clears throat> because my recovery became very important to me, and I knew, and I knew that is this was about my life, and so it wasn't about trying to keep a drunk sober, it was not, um, it was not about trying to keep my kids sober, it was about wanting to my own personal recovery. Um, what I'm going to do for the next three sessions is talk to you about relationships and my self-esteem and the way that I worked the program in order to gain self-esteem. I don't know how you got here, but I got here with none. I, you know I, I felt less than, I didn't feel like I deserved the air that I was breathing i didn 't know how to dress properly. I did not ha- know how to act appropriately. Um, I did not know that I was living in active alcoholism times three in my house. Um, there was just I was you know just broken in a lot of areas of my life and uh, when I got into the program, you know and I started to understand what it was that you had, and I still don 't know what it is that you have, so I keep coming back because everybody has something special you know? and so Developing relationships brought my self-esteem up, you know, developing a relationship with God, which what I'm going to do over the next three days is talk to you about my relationship with God, my program, myself, my husband, my parents, my children, my grandchildren, my work, money personal friendships, and then the last session will be on pretty much step 10, 11, and 12. And journaling has been in a, in a very important part of my, rela- of my relationship with myself, my relationship with life and God, and I'm going to share that with you. I'm going to have handouts here. They're going to be the same today and tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow morning. And then tomorrow night, I've got some, I've got some handouts on the journaling. And I um, have made bookmarks that are a gift and and of of, uh, something that I didn't know that I had. And it's my photography. And and so I've taken some pictures and made bookmarks. And and, uh, with the help of South Bay Roundup, you will all have a present to take home. I have to catch my breath. I'm I'm a Yankee. (laughs) I've lived in Texas nineteen years, but I was born and raised in Chicago and I talk fast and I really have to try to remember to catch my breath and talk a little bit slower. (laughs) Okay. I'm never at home in Texas. If you're not born there, you're not a native, so then they don't ever yeah, they're not forgiving. You never just get to be a Texan. You're always a Yankee. Um I came into the program in, on February 6th, February 9th of 1981. At that time I had, but I didn't know it, two alcoholic children, drug addict alcoholic children, and an alcoholic husband. And I didn't know that I was living in active alcoholism. In fact, I did not know they were even drunks. I was raised with drunks. And until I got here and, and sat with you and I began to hear that this is a disease and it's called alcoholism, um, I, I didn't and, and that it affected me, you know, I thought that all there was to drinking was drunks. And I want to tell you one story and this is the story that affected me most, and it's about my uncle Jimmy. It's my dad's brother. And he was a drunk. And, uh, he, he began drinking at a young age, just like my boys did. And by the time he was a young man and went into the service and were for World War II, you know, they, they were sitting around the bar one night, married or not, they all decided, you know, that they were gonna join Uncle Sam and, and go, um, and go off to, to fight World War II single-handedly, and, and they left a lot of people alone. When my Uncle Jimmy came back, he was, um, he was totally out of control. He ended up losing his family and his, He had a little daughter, and he ended up being one of the kind of people that lived on Skid Row in Chicago. He was an excellent butcher, and from time to time his disease would get so bad that somebody off 26th Street would call... Uh, my dad and mother and say, Jimmy is really bad, and you probably need to do something about him. So my father would go off on 26th Street, bring my uncle Jimmy home, and his fingernails were brown and curved over the tips of his finger, and he would smoke cigarettes without filters, and so the insides of his fingers were brown from where he would fall asleep and they'd stain. His clothes were very dirty, and, and his hair was dirty, and he was unshaven, and his teeth were brown. And my mother would go to the process of cleaning my up so they could take him to the VA hospital, and then he would stay in the hospital for a little while. They'd bring him back home, get him a job on 26th Street, and it would not be too long till the scenario began again. So as a young child, I was deeply affected by this man's, what I thought was drunkenness, and so that's why I did not identify alcoholism when I got into this program. On February 9th of 1981, it was the day where I feel like um, it was the blackest day of my life, and so many times this weekend we've been reassured so far that just because we get into Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous, life isn't going to get wonderful. And if you come into this program believing that you come in here and work the 12 steps, find God, go to a lot of meetings, that life is going to get wonderful, you're going to, you're going to feel like Al-Anon doesn't work. And Al-Anon works. And this is the last house on the block. It it is for me, and I hope it is for you, and I hope that you've got your chair, and my hope for you is that you don't give that chair up for anything. Um, So I, um, on February 9th of 1981 was my black day, and that was when I realized that my son was in big trouble with something. Pretty much I thought it was Stacy James, who was his best friend, and I, and I had a feeling that if we could get Scott into treatment and get rid of Stacy James, everything would be okay, but of course I didn't know this was alcoholism. So I asked my husband to come home, and we would take this child to the treatment center, and my husband couldn't come home from work, which was his MO. I asked my son if he would drive me, and he said he would drive me, but he wouldn't come in. And um, so Scott and I braved it up and we went into the treatment center and I left him there, but before I walked out the door they told me I had to join Al-Anon and that uh, I was also affected by this disease. And, and that was the first time I heard anything like that. So I left my son there and I, and I protested Al-Anon. I didn't come here because I wanted to be here. I came here because I was sentenced to be here. I was told by the lady in the treatment center that if I didn't Go to Al-Anon at, for the time that my son was in treatment that I couldn't come and visit him. I at that point did not know how to tell my children I loved them. I didn't care about them. Um, I hated them actually. Both of them. They were stealing from me. Um, they they punched holes in the walls of my house. They they broke things. They wouldn't mind. Uh, they were just totally out of control, and so was I. And of course, my husband was uh, you know a, a rip roaring alcoholic as well. And all of a sudden, this lady in the treatment center tells me that if I don't go to Al-Anon, I can't see this child, and I want to see this child more than anything in the world. So I thought I could do anything for 28 days that would appall me if I had to do it for the rest of my life. So I um, started to go to meetings on Monday in Louisville, at the at the Louis the old Louisville group, which is still there today. And on Thursday, I went to the to the um, Alpha group in Dallas which is no longer a part of Dallas, but it had such an impact on Dallas that, you know, there, from time to time we have alpha reunions, and I believe somebody's trying to put another one together right now. So I started to go to those two meetings, and whatever happens, grace, I call it, for me it's grace, magic, God, whatever it is, I started to come to Al-Anon because I wanted to be here and the journey began for me at that time I was here because I wanted to be here I was finding out that I was deeply affected by this disease I was finding out that I that I just you know I'd walk into a meeting and my head was you know right down my chin was on my chest I couldn't raise my eyes up to look around the room to even see who was there and like I told you I didn't think that I deserved to be breathing the same air that you breathed so um I started to I started to go to the meetings, and when I realized I was a part of you, as they were reading the opening, and, and I don't know how many meetings I'd been to, and somebody misread a word, and I knew what the right word should be, and I knew I was home. There's a song that I just love, and of course, almost everybody sitting in this room loves that song. It's called Amazing Grace. And if you think about the words in that song, you know, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me, you know, I was lost and now I'm found, you know, and, and that's how I feel about Al-Anon and about my life since I've been in Al-Anon is I was lost and now I'm found. Um, as I went on in recovery, somebody handed me a big book and they said, Scott and Steve and George suffer from the disease of alcoholism, and you know what, Beverly, we're going to be perfectly honest with you, we don't think Scott is going to stay sober. And it would be a really good idea if you got your own copy of the Big Book, started to read it so that you knew what alcoholism was. And I've been a student of the Big Book ever since. I don't think that if you're sitting in an Al-Anon room and you have not become a student of the Big Book, you don't know what alcoholism really is. Because that book, as you continue to read, it continues to it reinforce what alcoholism really is. And I started to read that book, but I was angry because I, I thought it was terrible of this man to tell me that he didn't think my son would stay sober. But sure enough, he was right. I watched the miracle of recovery happen to my son, Stephen. And uh, he's 16 and a half years sober on his original desire chip. He lives, uh, he lives in Houston. He's married to a real fine woman. They have a little 21-month-old granddaughter for me. They did that for me. Uh, and now they're, ha- they're going to have another baby in January for me. And, um, and if you ever think about a, a fairy tale life, Of recovery I believe that my son Stephen has it and and it it doesn't mean that it's a problem free life but it's really a wonderful life and this is a child who came into Alcoholics Anonymous wearing uh, titty shoes holy jeans a Coors hat a tequila t-shirt he had pimples on his face he had permed hair he was wearing an earring and his father jumped out of the car the night we were taking him to his first meeting and said I am NOT taking my son to Alcoholics Anonymous dressed like that and he jumped out of the car on the highway, and, and I had a moment of clarity because I was going to save him. I was going to jump out of the car and save him, and something inside of me, that little voice that we call, you know, the little voice, it says, Beverly, just drive the car, and I did. And I stood there in the door of Alcoholics Anonymous that night, just in the door frame, and, and was watching the people get their chips, and I watched my son, Scott, um, Tap Steve on the shoulder and say, You know, it's your turn, buddy. And I so, and Stephen is sober on that desire chip today. So Scott's life took on a whole different, um, it's a whole different story. Scott walked out of Alcoholics Anonymous after a brief encounter, um, ended up where we had to ask him to leave the house. We brought him back in with a broken leg and put him on an airplane to a treatment center in Minnesota. He came home 45 days later and stayed sober for a brief period of time. Um, I'm, I'm going to Al-Anon meetings, my husband and my other son are in Alcoholics Anonymous. Scott came home, he uh, got drunk shortly after that. By February 14th, uh, when he was 17, years, 17 and a half years old, I had to ask him to leave my house. I handed him two brown paper bags and he walked out. And it was as a result of knowing I had choices. And it was as a result of an alcoholic telling me that my home was a privilege. And that sober people deserve to live there. And if you were not sober, you did not deserve to live there. And I am forever grateful for your honesty here. But it was the first little glimmer of, of my, of myself coming back is that I had choices and my home was a privilege. And I was glad to know that it was a hard action to take. Sometimes we have the knowledge, but taking the action is really a hard thing to do. And, and just being walking on the faith that somebody else walked before us and that and that, if they could do it, we could do it. You know, how many things have we had the courage to do in this program simply on the faith that the person sitting next to us at our last al meeting said they did it, and it turned out, and I walked on faith. I walked on your faith. Um, so we put my son out. He lived in some crummy places. I started to go to more and more meetings because I had to believe that this was not about me. I didn't cause it. I couldn't control it, and I couldn't cure it. I had to accept it. And, and and I had to be aware of it, I had to accept it, and I had to start to take some action, which was to take care of myself. To come to believe that I was not a bad mother. I just had alcoholic children, but that did not make me a bad mother. It it It, it helped me to understand that I had growing to do in a lot of areas in my life where I needed some changes, But I was not a bad person trying to get good. I was a person who was living in the darkness, just as your theme of this conference says. I was living in the darkness, and I was learning how to live in the light. And so my son lived out in these crummy places, and I'm learning that when he would call me and tell me about all these things that I could tell him that I was so sorry for the way that he lived, but that it was very hard for me to hear him say that. It was another little step into finding myself and knowing that I didn't have to be a doormat for somebody else's problems. My heart would ache inside of me, but I took the actions. The end result of that is that my son always knew I loved him. He did not like the actions that I took. He did not like being detached from with love. Um, <laughs> they don't like when you take care of yourself, you know, because you break a pattern. There's a mold, and we fit in it, and we dance that dance for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, one day, we stop that dance and start a new one, and and it, and it makes everybody restless, irritable, and discontent. I, you know, so I. Um, I went, to a, I went to meetings, and I, and I tried very, very hard not to let my son's life affect me. He uh, ended up finding a lady that he'd met in high school. They dated for a while, and in uh, October of 1985, my son Scott got married. My son Steve graduated from Texas A&M with a degree, which didn't seem possible on the day that he walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, and I thought, you know, well... Their their lives are taking their own paths. My life was taking its path. My relationship with my husband was getting better, and and it just seemed like we were going to be okay. Um, My my son ended up in Florida, and a couple of years after they were married, they decided to have a child, and she was born in May, May 12th of 1988. And in October, early October of 1988, my son called me after uh, being in intensive care, and he says, Mom, I'm in full-blown AIDS, and I'm going to die. And about two weeks before my, that, my father, uh, we had brought my father. He lived in Carpentry, and we brought him here home to, to help him with cancer treatment, and in 1990, he died. So, you know, there have been some real heavy problems in our family. But what I'm telling you is that I didn't ever have to walk alone. And anybody that's sitting in these chairs that hasn't experienced the power of Al Anon and the power of Alcoholics Anonymous when we help each other get through life, you know, uh, stay here, you know, cause your turn will come and they're, and, and I mean, they'll just be upon you. they they, they just don't let you hurt alone. They, they care, they carry you. God carries you. So that's pretty much my life. Um, my son, um, came to Texas in 1990 shortly after my dad died. He came back to Texas. My, my, my husband and I um, had the privilege and, and also the heartbreak of watching my son go through the, the illnesses that go along with AIDS, and on February 6th of 1993, he died. And I, and I thought we had a, a, little, a little ceremony for him, and Alcoholics and Anonymous and Al-Anon showed up for my son's memorial, and um, my little four-year-old granddaughter sat on, stood on a chair, and she said, thank you for coming to my dad's party. And actually, my, and actually, Scott's memorial service was on uh, February 9th of 1993, and that was his original sobriety date. So that's kind of how it is for me. Um, I, I um, am, and so grateful for this. What I'm going to start by sharing with you, and and also encouraging you to do is to first of all to look at the areas of your life where you are powerless. It's it's so important to first of all. Uh, understand where you are powerless. I was reading the big book about a month ago and I was reading Dr. Silkworth's letter and in there was three or four words that just felt like they hit me in the head like a shovel and it says full flight from reality and I walked into this program in full flight from reality and I and I believe we all are there you know when we walk here we are surrendered to some kind of help and so I think that it's important on a daily basis to understand what you are powerless over if you can if, if you can do that um i we had a it, something happened in our home less than a month ago and i was in full flight room from reality it was alcohol related it was one of our family members and it was like i couldn't believe it happened but as i when i finally understood what the deal was and i looked back at it all the signs were there i was just in denial one more time This is a journey. It's not a destination. You are not going to get well in your first six weeks. Um, You know, there are some of us sitting in this room with 30, 40 years in Al-Anon, some of us with 30 or 40 minutes. You know, welcome. We're all in the same place, (laughs) you know. Um, After I began to understand what I was powerless over, which at that time in my early time in Al-Anon was my son Scott's alcoholism because my other son and uh, Steve and George... They seemed to be doing okay, you know, and I was really working on myself. So I was powerless over Scott's um, Scott's life, and, and I had to get to the place where it says, came to believe. I, I understood I was powerless. I understood my life was unmanageable. But now in step two, you're saying to me, you have to believe. You have to come to believe in God. And... um When I was four years old, my mother woke me up one Sunday morning and she said, you're going to church with your Auntie Annie and you'll be raised a Catholic. And I did that for a number of years. And then when we moved to Westmont, Illinois, I woke myself up on Sunday morning and I went to church myself and I raised myself, continued to raise myself as a Catholic. And I was doing a real fine job being raising myself as a Catholic. I was very dedicated. I was in that little church every Sunday morning with or without friends. And I look at that today and I think to myself I had there was always something within me that was that that wanted to be close to having a relationship with a higher power. So when I was 19 or almost 20 and I was uh had decided to marry my husband, I wanted to be married in the Catholic Church and I knew there'd be the rule about behind the altar he'd been married before and he had a child by his other marriage and I didn't know that that counted i I mean, I just didn't know it counted, so I go in there and I talk to the monsignor and after an hour conversation, I happen to just casually mentioned to him that my husband had been married before and he had a child and the Monsignor said, you know, that I need to let this man go and find myself a nice Catholic boy who doesn't have that kind of history. And it was, you know, it was too late. I mean, I was, I'd been dating him, you know, a long time and we were engaged. And so I ended up getting married in my living room by a justice of the peace. And this November 11th, I will be married 36 years to that same man. So... Uh, and that, and I'm going to talk about my relationship with him too. <laughs> um, we've just walked through four and a half years of grief, and and and, and four years was really hard on us. It, it, we really had a hard time, um, and it was only because of the program that we we managed to stick it out. So. What I realized not so long ago, it has not been all this long, all this long ago, I thought I threw away the Catholic Church because I never stepped foot in that church again or any other church for a long time after that. But I realized just recently that I threw away the Catholic Church and I threw away God. And I became self-willed. I was all-powerful, you know, and I, and, and I could do anything and I didn't need your help. And I and I had an alcoholic that was never at home, so he that in itself made me powerful. You know, I I learned how to do things that most women don't ever have to know how to do, but I can do them, and and I can do them well. And I don't want your help. Thank you. Um, last this this Tuesday, I I'm working on registration for a large convention, and it's going to happen starting next weekend. And I had 800 registration packets to put together, along with getting on the airplane to come here Thursday. And and I have all these years done those registration packets myself. And this year, I asked for help. It is still hard for me to ask for help. Now, I did make the girls a lasagna because I felt like I had to pay them in order <laughs> to be deserving. Um, but I, I'm a good cook, and I decided I'd share that. So, um, anyhow, I was I was self-willed. There was no God in my life. There was no power in my life. I I will do it all myself. Thank you very much. So um, when I came here and it got to a place where I knew that I was going to have to, in order to stick with you, I was going to have to find a God. I didn't know where to do that. The big book on page 52 has a real powerful statement and it. it says we were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. Those are curable things if you have worked step two for the most part. But that was, that was full of me. I was prey to misery. I was depressed. I had, I had no feeling of, useless, of usefulness. Um, I was full of fear, and I was very, very unhappy. The God that I had was scorekeeping. He was a punishing God, and he was a God who was out to get me. And I was raised with a mother who said to me, if you do that, God will get you. And when I had my own two little boys, I would say, would come home and they'd say, Mom, I fell off my bike, and look at my elbow. And I'd say, You know what, Steve? If you hadn't punched your brother this morning, that wouldn't have happened. God got even with you. And so I put that kind of fear back into my children. And that's the kind of God that they were raised with, was a God who kept score, a punishing God, um, a, and a God that was out to get them. Um. Coming to believe in a power greater than myself, a power that is not of my will, but for me to be able to release whatever it is that I think I can do and turn it over to something I can't see was an incredible act for me. And I sat in meetings and I would hear people talk about the God of their understanding and I could not hook up with that God. And, and I knew that if I couldn't hook up with the God that you were talking about, that I was doomed. And I knew it. I knew that I could not stay here until I found the power greater than myself. And so I guess somewhere, without even realizing, I must have asked for willingness to come to believe. My son, Steve, was a night stalker in a grocery store. And... um at 6 o'clock in the morning when the kids got off work, there was a lot of dented and broken things. You know, they'd take the razor blade and cut through a case of Cheerios or whatever. And they'd put all this stuff in a big basket in the back room, and they would allow the kids to pick it through it and purchase it at a very reduced price. And um, <clears throat> I worked in a bank. And so I got all my checks for free. But I'm a perfectionist, and I don't like to write void in my checkbook. I don't know about you. I like to, That just drives me crazy. So I don't write void. So I would give Stephen a check written out to the Tom Thumb, signed by me, and I would date it. And every few days, if he didn't bring me home groceries, I would use that check for something else. Never throw it, never tear it up. You know, I had to use it so I wouldn't have um, that blank space in my checkbook. So one day we were changing out checks, and I put that check in my wallet with the intention of stopping off at the Tom Thumb and buying a few groceries on my way to work or home from work. And by the time I got into the Tom Thumb to buy the groceries, the check was gone, and it was signed, and it was made out to the store. And I got really Frightened. I'm new in the program. You know how we get when we just go berserk when we don't have a God. I mean, I was really out of control. And I'm running around the store telling managers about it and having them do all kinds of things at the register. Because I worked at the bank, I knew when I walked out the door that um, so did everybody else. So I couldn't call and put a stop payment on that check. So I got got home, and again, I don't know where this came from, but the thought came to me to do the next right thing. And I changed my clothes, and I went, and I thought, well, I'll make potatoes. I'm going to peel potatoes. So doing the next right thing for me was to peel potatoes. And um, as I was peeling the potatoes, believe it or not, peeling potatoes is a surrender when you're trying to find God. Because I was doing the next right thing, and I was peeling the potatoes, and the telephone rang. And the lady on the other end of the phone, her name was Gracie and uh, and I still see Gracie today, um, she said to me, Beverly, I cannot believe we have somebody as stupid as you working for our bank. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, did you lose something? And I said, yeah, Gracie, I lost a check. And she said, I was in Walmart. Now, Gracie filed checks for a living, and I don't know how they do it today, but back then they used to sit with long drawers, and the signature card would show, and they would match the check with the signature card as they filed the checks every day. She did this day after day after day. And my check, and it was before the days when pay to the order was written on the back, where, you know, where there's those little lines on the back of the check. It was just a blank white piece of paper. And it had fallen upside down in the Walmart, which is where I went before I went to the Tom Thumb. Gracie was the next person in line after me, but I didn't know that. And when she looked on the floor and saw the blank white piece of paper, because when it fell, it fell face down, she said to herself, I think that's a check. And she picked it up off the floor, and it was my check. And she called me on the phone to tell me it was safe in her possession, however, that I was very stupid. And and I'm sitting there for a moment, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I didn't know better, that could probably count as one of those miracles that they're talking about in Al-Anon. And all of a sudden, I wept. I can't, I mean, I just the tears just rolled down my cheeks, and I wept. And then I thought to myself, "This." I always say I thought to myself, but that's not really how it is. The thought came to me, put into my heart, surely by God, that I had a sober son. I had another sober son. I had a husband in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was actively attending Al-Anon, and I never made a phone call. I never, I didn't even know we had alcoholism. All I thought we had was drunks. And so there I am, sitting in the middle of this miracle, and I didn't even know it had happened to me. So from that moment on, I came to believe that there truly was a power who had my best interest in mind. Now, I'm ho- my hope for you and my challenge for you is that you look out there and you find the miracle. And I'm here to tell you today that I have come to believe that I am one of God's children. And I hope and I challenge you to believe in yourself that you are also one of God's children. But I am God's favorite child. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a neat feeling. Um, I was told after I had come to believe in this power that I was going to have to build a foundation. That you just can't come into the program and start to believe in God without knowing that God had always been in your life. And so somebody challenged me to go back into my life and pick up some past experiences where I could see God work in my life. And I'm going to share a couple of these things with you, and and then I would like for you to think back over your own life. If you haven't built your foundation in this power, it's absolutely essential. You can't start to develop self-worth and value and relationships with other people until, first of all, you have a, a solid relationship with God and then you have a solid relationship with your Al-Anon group and then you begin to grow in relationship to yourself and then once those things happen you can have relationships with other people but if those things aren't in place first of all there is no way that you can go out there and have a good relationship with anybody if you cannot have a relationship with yourself or God so I'm going to tell you a couple of little things first of all I found myself pregnant about 30 seconds after I said I do. And um, the rice was still falling out of my hair, I think, you know. And and he, of course, was drunk. I don't know how it happened. But all of a sudden one day I looked down at my belly when I was eight and nine-tenths months pregnant, and I looked at that and I thought, oh, my God, what have you gotten yourself into now? And then I thought I had this moment of startling clarity how is that going to come out of there? And I I thought, that is going to (laughs) hurt. And it did. And um, (laughs) I didn't learn from my mistakes. I had two children, right? (laughs) Um, We are just gluttons for punishment. But my husband, as I told you, couldn't come home. And so I find myself in labor. And I called my mom, and she says, "Well." call George. I think you're in labor. You guys need to go to the hospital. So I called George and he says, I'll be there in a minute. Does that sound familiar? Um, and that's okay when you're holding dinner, but when you're when you're in labor, that's not a good thing. So I called him again about 10 minutes later and I says, honey, I'm in, or, I says, I'm in labor and you have got to come home. And he says, I will be there in a minute. And so, I don't know, four, five, ten phone calls later, he still is going to be there in a, la- in a minute, and the people at his work are saying, George, if she's in labor, you need to be, like, on the road. Y- and, you know, this baby's going to come with or without you. Well, I'm standing there, and I'm just sobbing. You know, I- it hurts, and I don't know what to do, and I can't get my husband home from work. And the Crema Weber milkman came <laughs> and his milk truck, and he drives up to the front of our house, and he delivers, you know, they really did have the little the little metal case that they brought the milk up. And he comes up, and I said, thank you. And I took the milk, and I go, and he says, lady, are you okay? And I says, I think I'm in labor, and I can't get my husband to come home. And he said to me, I've got five children, like under the age of five. And he says, and if you're in labor, you're in trouble. And he says, where is your husband? And I says, well, he just works down the street, but he won't come home. And he said to me, if he isn't here in five minutes, he said, "You are going to the hospital in a milk truck." <laughs> and you know, I look back at that and God sends you whatever you need when you need it and I, and God came to get me in a milk truck just in, just in case um, the the next thing I thought about was, um, <laughs> it, well, we've all got those kind of stories. <laughs> The next thing that I thought about was when George and I were married about four years, our little boys were like two and four years old, uh, whatever, I don't know. (laughs) We had an opportunity to buy a house. And um, we we lived in Ogden at the time, and the Hill Air Force Base is in Kaysville, Utah. And at the south end of that runway, there's a little subdivision, and they said that that subdivision, the houses weren't worth very much because the jet planes took off over the runway, right over that little subdivision. So these are nice houses, but they're, they don't increase in value because nobody wants to live there. Because I think at that time, Hill Air Force Base was a maintenance place for aircraft. So my husband and I thought we could live with anything as long as we had our very own house. So we found a little house in Kaysville at the south end of that runway and, and, and we decided to, to go ahead and buy it. We had access to a GI loan and that went through and, um, it takes about three or four months to get a loan through on GI. The real estate lady handed us over the keys, and she said, in the meantime, you guys can go in there and paint and shampoo the carpets, do whatever you want, but you can't move anything in here. You can't live here. So that was a good deal. So one night in December, uh, or actually moved in the house, and it was early December, we decided to get a shampooer and go in that house and shampoo the rugs. And we did that. And by the time we finished, our little babies had gone to sleep. So George puts the rug shampoo in the back of my old, I had an old Chevy pickup. And he puts it in the back of the pickup. He puts the babies on the front seat, and they're sleeping, and they're kind of laying on me. And he hops in an automatic transmission brand-new station wagon, and he takes off down the road. And I'm in this old pickup with the choke and the three-speed transmission on the steering column, and it's Utah, it's December, it's cold, the truck is cold, we're cold, and we start out down the road, and he said, let's take the upper road home, it's a little faster. So we took the upper highway, and we went down the road, we get to where the upper road met with the road out of our subdivision, and there's a slight incline, and he just sailed across, it was, two la- it was a four-lane highway not an interstate, but a four-lane. He sailed across the interstate, and he's heading on down the road. I stopped at the stop sign, but when I put the little truck into first gear and started, the choke did something, and the truck died. And I'm level now, sitting across two lanes of traffic, and I happen to look out over there, and sailing down that side of that interstate is a semi. And, and, you know, it's just coming at me. And I believe today more strongly than ever before that God got in that truck with me that night because I had clarity I didn't even know that I had. I turned off the lights and I adjusted that choke because it was my truck and I knew where that choke needed to be and I adjusted that choke and, and I carefully turned on the key and I and I remembered don't put on too much gas Beverly and I'm, I'd i look over there and I'd see that truck coming down the highway and I'd see these little kids and, and I'm sitting there and I turned the car on and I went to start it and it stalled again and I started it again and it stalled and finally the third time I got this little truck going and I and I turned on and I Put it into first gear, and I started across the highway and I got across the next two lanes, and I pulled off into the shoulder just as that semi sail down the road in a breeze you know and and I was shaking so badly that i couldn 't drive. My husband is now waiting he 's watching this happen. he jumps out of the nice brand new station wagon and he comes running over to the car and see fear comes out in anger. you taught me that, but back then i didn 't know that, and he beats on the window and I rolled it open and he said what the hell did you do you know and I and I'm standing there and I'm crying and I'm shaking and I'm thinking I'm glad I'm alive you know but I realized today that God got in that truck and you know with the help of God I stayed calm enough to know to turn off the lights and put the car in neutral and not give it too much gas and try again when all else fails and finally I got across the road and I remembered that day when we bought our house in Texas I set out We've been living in New Jersey. My husband got a big promotion. I set out with a house that I wanted. I knew what I wanted. We looked at about 30 houses and that house did not show up. And as we're driving out of the last subdivision and we hadn't found a house and I was going to settle for something I really didn't like, I saw a Century 21 sign in a lawn and I said to the lady, did we see that one? And she said, no, but it's not my listing. And, um, and I says, I'd like to see that one. And so she said, well, if the key's in the box, we'll go do it. So the key was in the box, and we went in, and I knew instantly it was my house. It was instantly. Didn't make her happy, but it had everything in it that I wanted. And I looked at that, and I thought, this house has provided us a place where my husband and I are self-employed in it and the way that the house is arranged it allows us to have our place of business in two of the bedrooms and it doesn't really interfere with the rest of the house. And It gave us enough room to have Scott and the baby there when Scott was getting sick. It gave us the, the, the room to have my father there when he was dying and this house has served many purposes and um And I thought to myself you know over and over and over again, and we also bought the house nineteen years ago, and we don 't pay very much for the house and and our income isn 't what it used to be and I looked at that, and I thought, even back then, God was providing for me with a sh- with the shelter that He promises long before I ever knew what a gift this house was going to be and um The wonderful thing about this house now is that there's trees in the yard, which weren't there before, and I've planted literal seeds, and I have grown my own trees, and they're big, beautiful trees. The day that Stephen went off to college, our relationship was growing, you know, as a result of sobriety, and... um, And he said to me, I'll be right back, Mom. And he takes the car and a shovel and he goes out and he gets a tree. He came back in a few minutes and he digs a hole and he planted a stick of a tree. That tree today is about 15 or 20 feet tall. But what he said to me that day, he says, Mom, if the tree grows, he said, when you sit in the kitchen and you look out, you'll think of me. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't look at that tree and think of Stephen. I would, however, love to cut it down because it is a swamp willow. And if any of you know what a swamp willow is, they're not attractive. And my husband has breathing problems, and that tree has fuzzy little things that fall off of it, but I wouldn't cut that tree down for anything. So this is the God that I came to understand. Meditation, journaling, the third and the seventh step prayer, reading a lot of spiritual books. You know, sometimes I'll read them only until I find the place where I get the message that's for me, and then I close them up, and that's the end of them. Finding these miracles. You know, I was challenged when I found out that my son was dying and my dad was dying. I was challenged by the sponsor I had at that time to write at the top of my journal page a miracle a day, and I said, what an order, I can't go through with it but i'm here to tell you if you can't find a miracle a day in your life you have not hooked up with the god of my understanding because he provides us with a miracle every time we breathe in and breathe out you know and then some days it's a neon and sometimes it's dazzling but i got into the routine of writing this miracle down in my journal every day and the reason for that was when as as my journey with my son went on they said that um I'd come to a place where I sometimes would not believe in God. And I would, ha- I could look back over these pages and find, find this God. Today I write down five things I'm grateful for. It's part of this. The, the, the middle part of the word spiritual is ritual. To become spiritual, you have to have a ritual, and to have a ritual, you have to have a routine. So you have to set this time with God aside every day. You know, it has to become a part of you as breathing in and breathing out. You take the time to read your ODAT book, to write a few words, perhaps if you choose to write in a journal, and, and by all means, get on your knees and pray. And there's a lady in this room that was my inspiration for prayer. I was eight or nine years um, in the program, I didn't believe that praying on my knees was for me. I thought that was for other people. And she and I had the opportunity to be at a convention together and we shared a room. And, and she, I, she had told me she prayed on her knees, but I didn't believe it and so where I'm talking you know I I'm a talker and back then I still had a lot I had a lot to say and I'm little 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 and and she washed her face and got in her jammies and she got on her knees and prayed and I thought to myself she's doing that for me she just wants to make an impression on me and so the next morning and I thought she is really doing a fine job of this example thing we learn by example but the next morning, I thought, I'm going to catch her. And I pretended like I was asleep. And I laid there, and, and I opened just this one eye that was kind of buried in the pillow so she wouldn't see this eye was closed. And, and I thought, she won't know I'm peeking, and so she, with she'll think I'm sleeping. She won't pray. And do you know what? She did it anyhow. And uh, by the time I, I left her that day, I made a promise to myself that I would pray on my knees twice a day because she was my example. And I have never missed a day since then and it and it closes a circle recovery is a circle it goes around and around you have to do the work and it goes you know you start at the beginning and it goes around and all of a sudden you have reaped the rewards of your efforts you there are always rewards to the efforts. there are also things that I call epiphanies or eternal instances and you will all find those things there'll be a time when you'll see a sunset or a flower or a bird or a baby and you'll, and it'll, and it will be so overwhelmingly powerful to you that you'll weep in the presence of the beauty. And if you have not found those things, it's because you have not yet opened your heart to this God. It is such a powerful, powerful God that we are connected to here. And I've had those experiences, and, uh, one of them was, they opened up, um, a new aquarium in Newport, uh, Oregon. And my husband and I had the privilege of seeing this aquarium just a couple of days after it opened. And in the, one of the rooms of the aquarium is a big glass cylinder, and it has no plant life in it at all. At the top, it has lights, and at the bottom, it has lights, and they're just pastel lights, pink and yellow and aqua and green, and at, and, and the lights are in there. And inside the cylinder are jellyfish, just big jellyfish and little teeny jellyfish but I'd only seen them uh, in the sand in Florida and they're kind of just and they said don't step in them but in this cylinder they are the most majestically beautiful creatures I've ever laid my eyes on and I stood there and I watched these jellyfish and I wept and my husband says what's wrong with you and I said just leave me alone (laughs) do you know The first inclination for somebody like me who takes pictures is I have to photograph that. And my pictures of the jellyfish didn't turn out. God wanted me to make a memory picture of that beauty and to never forget it. And there's not a time, you know, when I sometimes feel like, there. and all of us wake up in a day when we say we just can't go another day, that I think of those jellyfish and I think if God can make something that beautiful, I can certainly get through this day. And those are the kinds of things that keep me going one day at a time. Life is hard. Scott Peck says that in the very first sentence of his book. Life is hard. If you come to enough Al-Anon meetings and you listen to people share, you will come to understand life is hard. And we just do this together. Al-Anon has grown, of course, in, in my telling you this. It is, I hope what I have projected to you is how important this program is to me personally. Not to my husband, not to my sons, to me personally. You have to get to a place where you want Al-Anon, whether your alcoholic comes to meetings or doesn't come to meetings, stay sober or doesn't stay sober, you stay here because this is your place for your own personal recovery. And I got to that place, and I, and, I, and it's, it's a glorious place. How Al-Anon Works is one of our new pieces of literature, and on page 34... I want to read this to you it says alcoholism is a progressive disease that can be arrested but not cured therefore we who are affected by another's alcoholism can best ensure our own continuing serenity if we learn to depend on ourselves for our well-being rather than on another person's sobriety as we become increasingly aware of our behavior our choices and the part we play or have played in the alcoholic situation, we become much better able to make changes that allow us to create a life that we can be proud of. In the Courage to Change on page 49, it says, uh, Al-Anon meetings, fellowship steps, tradition and literature will help me to improve my ability to relate to others. I will renew my commitment to recovery today. The Al-Anon Closing offers us a promise. Did you know that the opening and the closing is only promises? And if you haven't figured that out yet, just take a look at that. When you listen to that, and that's why we need to be quiet when we're reading the opening and the closing, because we have to remember the promises that the opening and the closing offer us. And in the closing it says, Let there be no gossip or criticism of one another. Let the understanding, love, and peace of the program grow in me one day at a time. The Dilemma of the Alcoholic Marriage says an earnest and concentrated study of Al-Anon programs in depth will help us to become more tolerant, confident, and loving, teaching us to accept the faults of others as we seek to correct shortcomings in ourselves. There's a quote. It says, Help, comfort, and support are available to me. I am willing to reach out for what I need today. And it says, If... If, any, if someone tried to get too close, I shut down. I turned cold. I was afraid of getting too close or being loved because deep inside, I didn't feel worthy. I lived in a world of fantasy, always wishing, dreaming, hoping for what I myself could not give or accept. And I think that I had to learn here to be able to receive love. I think we all give her, in. we're such people-pleasers. We know how to take care of people, and we think we know how to love people. But several years ago, I had the privilege of being the Al-Anon speaker at the Mississippi Alateen Convention, which is held at a state park in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I went there with the arrogance that I still owned at that time, and oftentimes picks up that I am an adult and I shall be treated different this weekend. But when you go to an Alateen conference, you are treated as the children are treated. Thank you, God. And I'm glad for that today. But I was very arrogant when I got there, and I thought it was absolutely humiliating that I had to ask another adult if I could leave the concrete and go to the bathroom. I had to walk in the same group with the other people you know and when I finished eating I had to sit there and wait till everybody was done and what I learned that weekend is kids are people too I raised two alcoholic children that went through puberty and alcoholism simultaneously and I didn't know anything about kids and sitting there that weekend I realized what I had missed and I realized that the pain that alcoholism puts a child through and on Sunday morning these kids put the theme from Robin Hood in one of those big ghetto boxes or boom boxes and they turned it up to about 3,000 decibels in the woods and they asked us to close our eyes and count, well actually we counted off one, two, one, two, and we broke off into two groups. The ones had to stand there with their eyes closed, their hands at their sides and the twos walked around the piece of cement under the pavilion and they whispered affirmations of love in our ear. And to that very moment, I always thought to myself I was a lover, that I could not only receive love, but I could give love. What I realized that morning as these kids came around and whispered affirmations in my ear is that I did not know how to receive love because I hardly could believe what they were telling me. And I stood there humbled by the grace of God that morning because I thought to myself, they're kids, you know, and kids really are pretty honest. And I walked away from that Alatine convention that weekend knowing that I was a, I had always thought myself to be a grateful giver. But what I realized that weekend is I did not know how to receive. And it was the beginning of a big opening for me to where I can receive love. And receiving the love is a part of growing into myself. Being able to receive love is one of the most healing factors to your self esteem. To, to, to who you are, to getting yourself back, to coming home, to who you are. There's an alcoholic man that talks in his talk about when um, Michelangelo took the block of stone and he carved out the statue of David. Um, they asked him how he created something so lovely, and he said he chipped away everything that wasn't David. And what I've realized is that each experience that I've had in this program has helped God to chip away the parts of Beverly that weren't Beverly. And I'm in process right now. And I, and I'm, I, you know, I know I've got a long way to go, but I really like what you've done with me so far. And God uses you constantly to bring messages to me to help me grow to have more self-esteem and to have this relationship with God so that I can go out and have relationships with you and I can receive love as well as give love. My relationship with myself was difficult because I didn't have a self when I got here. Um, First of all, no other relationship could work until I began to have this relationship with myself and how did I go about this process it's been fun it's been it's been sad it's been grueling it's been embarrassing it's been humiliating it's been everything but the end result is is that it's it mostly it's been fun and and I if you are not having fun finding you finding your life helping God chip away everything that isn't you have fun doing it you know buy the wrong color lipstick and get 17 dresses that aren't you, but at least experiment, you know, go places you've never been, go on ski lifts and hot air balloon rides and do things that are just wonderful. If you don't like them, you don't have to do it again. But if you've never tried it, how do you know? But fear rules our life before we get here. Fear. And in the big book it says we are driven by a hundred forms of fear. And, and Al-Anons, as well as alcoholics, are driven by a hundred forms of fear. And those fears not only stop us from being the people that we really want to be, they stop us from from living the life that God wants us to live. So I've been out there doing this. I made a big decision about life at the moment my son died. My son was a go-for-life kind of a kid. You know, I, I was always trying to match him up, you know, get the right color socks on him and the right shirt. And my son was a tie-dyed kid with one shoe off, one shoe off. The pants never fit. He would have loved this new fab that they've got now with these size 57 pants, you know, that they wear at just at about one-eighth of an inch before the crack of their butt, you know. That would have been right up Scott's alley. He would have loved that. But I was always trying to make him match to conform life and scott just he marched to a different drummer and he was he was full of life i kept trying to put his life in a box and and make his life the way i wanted it to be but at the moment of his death what i saw happen to my son was he had been in a coma for two days and and there was no body fluids anywhere and at the moment of his death a huge tear rolled down his cheek And he took a big breath, and he never let it out. And what I realized, he even had jumped for joy. You know, obviously he saw something up there he wanted, (laughs) and he was gone. And I thought to myself, I am going for life. I am not going to say no to life. We owe it to ourselves here. But if we haven't got any self-esteem, we can't go out there and do life. We just can't do it. We're stuck. So do life. In the picture, in the motion picture, Sabrina, the new, the new version, when she goes off to Paris and she's talking with the lady who's helping her find her new job, she said to her, I found myself in my journal. And I realized that without even realizing it over the past 14 years, I have, with a lot of other experiences, found myself in my journal. Um, and if you aren't writing, I encourage you to at least try it. Um, Tomorrow, the late session is going to be on the journal. I've got some things I'm going to pass out, but I also, I've got two journal prizes, and and so some two people in the audience tomorrow are going to get a journal, and um, and I you know encourage you to if you don't have one, get a spiral notebook, get a piece of toilet paper, get a paper towel. You know, my journal is is it, well, I'm going to show you that tomorrow. Keep coming back. Um, <laughs> surprises. So anyhow. I found myself, part of me in the writing, sponsorship is an incredible tool for self esteem because a sponsor will give you the unconditional love that you have not received until you got here. Sponsorship is not about judgment but about encouraging another person one on one. To, to keep moving on, you can do it, you can do it. Um, we were talking not just a couple of days ago about the little book about the little man or the little train who could. you could do it, you could do it. And I've always had sponsors who said, you can do it, you can do it and, I, and I've believed in them when I couldn't believe in myself. Sponsorship is about unconditional love. My, my grandmother was five, was four feet eleven inches tall and four feet eleven inches wide. And I'm 5'8", and I've been about this tall since about 30 seconds after I was born. And um, my grandmother was my only source of unconditional love until I walked into the program of Al-Anon. There was a lot of reasons for that. My grandmother used to, on a Saturday night, she lived with us for six months out of every year because she didn't have a home because my grandfather was alcoholic, and he died of alcoholism, leaving her with a little leather purse, his obituary, and six cents. And nowhere to live and no means of making uh, enough income to provide for herself so she had to live six months out of every year with her son and six months out of every year with her daughter. And my grandmother came to live with us for six months out of every year, and it was the most wonderful six months. I'd be dead today if it wasn't for my grandmother because she did a lot of things, along with saying to my mother, "Sylvie, don't hit her again." (laughs) I would always think, "Oh, thank God!" You know, my grandmother was the only one who could interfere in that in my mother's brutal uh, behavior when she became restless, irritable, and discontent over alcoholism. I had a great resentment over my after about my father for. A little process a little period of time when I was during my inventory when I realized my father could have stopped my mother from hurting me but he never did but what I also realized is that had he tried to interfere the price he would have paid would have been great and he couldn't do it so my grandmother was there to protect me on Saturday nights we you know you, we had the Saturday night bath you know all in the same water and um, And she'd wash my hair, and it would be so dirty by Saturday because I was an active kid. And she would take pieces of white sheet and tear them into little pieces, and she'd roll my hair up into rag curls. And for the next six months, it would stay curled. I mean, it would just, just looked like, you know, it was just out there. But then as it started to relax, it would get prettier and prettier, you know, and she'd brush it every day, and then she'd braid it. And she was always fixing me. And, and when I, if I had a sore throat, she'd put Vicks on my chest and she'd rub and she'd rub and she'd take one of the old flannel rags and she'd wrap it around me. And, and she would sometimes fix me tea and put a little bit of bourbon in there because she said it was good for, good for the cough, you know. And um, so she loved me unconditionally. I did not have to do anything to receive my grandmother's love except just be there. Um, And so I came to this program, and I was, again, to experience unconditional love by many of you. But sponsorship is the largest resource for unconditional love. I encourage you, if you do not have a sponsor, please don't leave the South Bay Roundup without one. Even if it's on a temporary basis, get somebody's phone number, make a commitment to call. You can have a sponsor, but if you don't call, it doesn't work. <laughs> you have to call. Um so I have a sponsor today and I've had I've had several sponsors and uh and I, and I call. I use my sponsor. She's a source of unconditional love. All my sponsors have been sources of unconditional love um women's conferences and i know you have them here in california because i've been to one of them women's conferences are wonderful places to find out about being a woman um even in, in texas i i when i do this workshop there's men in the audience we have man to man in texas i don't know if you have man to man in california but they have man to man where they get together and and, and they can just let their hair down or whatever they do when they're all together in a dorm. <laughs> um, some of them don't have hair, but Wayne Dyer says that's a solar panel for a sex machine, so. <laughs> um, however, it works. <laughs> Um, women's conferences were wonderful because see I thought I had something you didn't have and and I was afraid to show mine off or not and so I had wrapped myself in a sheet and a bedspread and kind of slid into the ladies room when nobody else was there thinking I'd have my shower so you couldn't see me and I didn't want to see you because that was all too terribly embarrassing and I got caught and you know, they says, what are you hiding? And they make you, they just embarrass you to death. And, and so all of a sudden I kind of looked around and figured it was all the same except in different shapes. And we had a lot of fun just, and it's a freedom. It's a freedom, you know, it's a freedom to let another woman hug you when you are terrified. The only woman in my life was a woman who beat the snot out of me most of the time. And I came here and have learned to love and trust the women. I depend on the hugs of the women and there's nothing more fun than going to a woman's conference and piling into a bed like a can of worms and laying in there in the afternoon and giggle and laugh and tell funny stories about them and us and and whatever and and I mean it's just it is so nurturing it was the beginning for me my first woman's conference I go with my sponsor, and do you know who was our companion in the car? We got the great privilege of going out to the airport and picking Winnie Etty up and taking her out three and a half hours out to Brownwood to the to the woman to woman. And you know what I said to my sponsor at that time? I said, does she smoke because I have a new car? And she said, yes, she smokes. She brings her own ashtray, and we're not going to worry about it. <laughs> and I, I oh, my God. She says, Beverly, do not even think about it. And when he smoked all the way to Brownwood and all the way back again, and I was just so taken with the conversation and the recovery and all that was going on in that car, and I thought to myself, you know, it was one of those times where one of those little nitpicky things was about to spoil a real memory for me. You know, how many times have we allowed some little silly thing to spoil a beautiful, a potentially beautiful event, and I was going to do that. So women's conference, I looked in your little cases of stuff and I found your purple stuff and your red stuff and, and I and I found out that your perfume you bought at Macy's and, and, and it came in beautiful jars and it lasted a long time and, and I started to be able to finally one day purchase a bottle of very expensive perfume. And I don't have, from that day till day, I always have at least one bottle of very expensive perfume because I'm worth it. Today I'm worth it. Today, um, the only perfume I ever wore was Clorox and you know, <laughs> and and draino and, Drano, and you know, I always smelled like a detergent. You know, or some, I, that's all I smelled like, and so. I didn't know how to put myself together you know I didn't know how to comb my hair I didn't know how to wear this makeup I didn't know you guys wear wonderful underwear and now I wear wonderful underwear and it's fun you know and I don't wear it because my husband likes that I wear it because it's fun it's fun I it, being a woman is fun but but you can't believe that Oh, you have to kinda of grow into that idea I told you that I already know that I am God's favorite child And I hope you stay long enough to figure out whether or not we're in competition for that role. I had to learn to forgive myself. My behavior with my children was um, horrible. When Stephen was about two years old, probably still, he was still in a diaper. Scott was down for a nap, which was an unusual occasion in itself. I had cleaned the house to perfection. I'm a perfectionist. Stephen got up before Scott, and he took a Tonka truck out of his toy box, and he starts to take a little Tonka truck over a newly vacuumed rug. It was a day I was restless, irritable, and discontent. And before I even had a moment to think, I picked up a diapered baby and a wooden spoon, and I began to beat the living tar out of this baby. And the voice within said to me, Beverly, if you strike that that child again, you will kill him. I have... I have the kind of anger inside of me that is like a volcano. It rumbles around in there and it rumbles around in there and it rumbles and then all of a sudden some little, just some little event that is meaningless will trigger that and I go off into an anger that cannot be stopped. And, and thank God since I've been in the program that has not happened to me for many, many years. But it was a common occurrence, and that day, this anger exploded when I had a wooden spoon and a baby in my hand, and God spoke to me and said, put the child down, or you will kill him. And I reach a point of anger where there is no return, and I was at the brink of that, and I was able to put that baby down and not hit him again. Now, that didn't stop me for the rest of their lives to belittle them you know, to, add, to make fun of their friends, to scream and yell and holler at them in front of their friends and embarrass them. One time when Scott was about 8 and Steve was 10, it was a rainy day. We're living in New Jersey. They're downstairs playing Monopoly. I got restless, irritable, and discontent. I ran down the stairs screaming at these kids about something, and I embarrassed them in front of their friends, and next thing the game got put away and the kids all scattered. And Scott came up, and you know how, you know, you can't see how a child looks that's been affected by alcoholism, but their shoulders are kind of slumped, and, and they don't look up. But this kid looked at me, and he says, Mom, why do you always have to embarrass us in front of our friends? And I did not have a clue. I did not know what came over me, what possessed me to do those kinds of things to my children, to embarrass them about how they participated in sports sports to belittle their friends, to scream at them. They, they were very athletic boys, and they put a skateboard ramp up in my driveway. I had the perfect driveway. You know, they put that skateboard ramp up there. Some days I was fine with the skateboard ramp, and other days I'd get out there and I was like a terrorist. You know, and then the kids would scatter, and, and you know, it was just awful. And... Um, and I look back at all those things, you know, and I didn't want to be that kind of a mother. I wanted to be, the, I had the vision of the woman who made cookies, and I could make cookies. I couldn't serve them, and I couldn't serve them nicely. You know, I could make the cookies. I, I, made, a, I made the kids feel uh, guilty for eating them, or, 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 you know, those you know how it is? I mean, I don't know the words to put in that, but it's just so awful. And I had this vision in me of who I wanted to be, and I couldn't be her and um so i have had to learn to forgive myself but do you know how god helped me to do that he gave me a grandchild named sarah and he gave me a grandchild named hallie and he's given me one on the way and these little girls are teaching me that with you with god and with perseverance and dedication to my own recovery that i am everything i ever wanted to be and and god's not done with me yet i still can't even believe what we've got in store but Sarah has been um, an incredible light in my life, and, and um, there's a chance, you know, she's living in active alcoholism. I don't know for sure, and um, <clears throat> but all I know is that she knows where Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon are because she's been to the Crested Butte Mountain Conference. This is going to be her fifth year, and if she ever gets in trouble, she knows where to come. And it's kind of my dedication for my own recovery and for my part in keeping this program as pure as it was the day I walked in the door because I want my granddaughter, if she needs it, to find it. You know, even though Stephen is sober 16 and a half years, what's to say that Hallie won't grow up to be an alcoholic? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. It's it's a disease, you know, and we don't know who's going to catch it and who's not. I want this program to be pure and I want it to be as it was the way, the, the way I found it when I got here. So one day Sarah's in first grade and they say they're going to write a book and you don't know that you're making an impact on your children because see we can talk the talk but what we have to learn how to do is walk the walk. You can't say look at me look how great I've gotten. You have to just go to meetings, call a sponsor, read the literature, do what you're supposed to do, say I'm sorry, do all that footwork, and one day your little granddaughter's going to go to school and write a book and when the all the little book is done, it's going to be about her grandmother. Now that little girl absolutely adores her mother, but she wrote her book about her grandmother and it says, "My grandmother likes to meditate." Now I you have to know how a first grader spelled that, but she had a stick lady in a bed. With all, she, with the pillows, she was detail. I mean, the details in this were unbelievable. She had the little pillow, she had the bed, she had me sitting in it, she had me with the book, and she's got, in, in the words of a first grader, my grandmother likes to meditate. Then you flip to the next page and it says, my grandmother likes music. And she's got my bookshelf in my living room with the little stereo in the corner, and she made the little notes where the music is coming out. And every day, every every chance that I get, I make waffles from scratch, you know, where you beat the egg whites, and you make the mess, and you stir. And ever since, she was just a tiny little baby, two and a half years old. She stood on a stool with a whip, and she... um, she spins the dry ingredients. <laughs> now I'm the woman who would not let my children cook in the kitchen for fear they would make a mess and I'm letting my granddaughter spin the flour and it gets spun sometimes and, and uh and we make waffles and so the next thing in her little book was her sitting on the stool and we've got the bowl and I'm standing next to her and she says, My grandmother likes to make waffles. And she says, My grandmother prays and we've got a picture of her and I in the next to the bed to pray together and i was the person who was humiliated to pray for fear somebody would see me on my knees and what would they think to a woman who has a little grandchild who expects that that's the kind of actions that her grandmother is going to take and she's respectful of my meditation time and she says to me i'm going to watch cartoons when you're done praying and medit when you're done with your meditation and writing in your journal call me and we'll pray and she comes in from watching <laughs> cartoons and we pray she has her very own journal and it, and it's covered like mine. And she's got, um, I gave her her own little spiritual book and she, and she writes in that journal. You know, she's already starting to do some of those things. And it's because, not because I said, Sarah, if you don't get on your knees and pray with me, you're not going out tomorrow. It's because I just got on my knees and prayed to my grandmother that my little granddaughter came beside me very quiet.